Good morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. Don and Dennis, I, uh, Don and Dennis Wilson gave us some good news last night, and I wanted to share that with you all. I hope, I hope you don't mind me saying something. Is, is it okay if I do that? Um, Don and Dennis, you know, have been here since they came back from Columbia Bible Church in Idaho, and we've been praying for them and upholding them and praying how God would lead them. And it it seems that he has led them to take on a... uh, Pastor Dennis has been called to to be a pastor at a church down in Irvine. And so we are rejoicing with them. It's a church plant of about 26 people, roughly, less than 30. So they're going to need lots of prayer. And so I just want to... uh, I just want to commend them to you if you remember them to keep them in your prayers. But this is going to be their last Sunday with us. Uh, So they want him to start right away. And so if you get a chance, uh, wish the Wilsons well this afternoon and and let them know you'll be praying for them. And we love you guys and we trust it will go well. So lots of work to be done in the gospel ministry, huh? You know, I was thinking yesterday as my wife and I were surveying our backyard and we were looking at everything that needs to be done landscaping-wise. It looks like nuclear fallout in our backyard, essentially. Everything is brown and dirty and, and there's lots of dirt patches with weeds coming up all over the place. And sometimes you look at something like that and you go, I don't know, it's just overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. In particular, over on the side yard, one of the areas I need to start with is the sprinklers and the drip system over on the side yard has been out for a while now. And so one of our little trees outside of our bedroom window is shriveled up and dried and the leaves are falling off. And, and I can't give you too much assurance that tree is going to live, <laughs> but we're going to try to bring it back from the brink here. And so... What I need to do is, is fix the drip line. But I was thinking about that. You know, there's, a, there's life illustrations everywhere you look, it seems. And, and I was thinking about, as we've been talking about the subject of assurance last week and this week, that our assurance lies in being connected to the sprinkler line, if you will. It, our assurance lies in being connected to the source, which is God and Christ. Apart from that, if you're not connected, you will wither you will dry and your sense of assurance will be all but lost. You will be like a dried branch. We need to walk closely with the Lord. We need the source of life. We need uh, to walk near Him. So we've been talking about blessed assurance. This is a three-part series out of First John. And this morning in particular, I just want to remind you of a quote that we read last week. Uh, unknown Puritan writer, he said, Assurance will assist us in all duties. It will arm us against all temptations. It will answer all objections. It will sustain us in all conditions. Assurance is vital. You know, I was, I was thinking about this recently as my mom uh, passed away. Most of you know, I don't know, what's it been, a month and a half now? And I was thinking about that, you know, how as believers do we face the uncertainties of life in particular the grave what's beyond the other side what is it that gives us any sense of assurance in our salvation you know when we face that ultimate end how do we know that we know that we know 
And I think, beloved, that assurance is what empowers us in this life to live for eternity on the other side. I think it helps us to know where we will, where we will be going, not only for then, but for now. And so I've been thinking about that a lot. And, and this uh, second message here, we're calling it Wrestling for the Truth. And uh, remember what I told you, the background in John's gospel is in particular, John wrote, not John's gospel, John's epistle. John wrote this epistle with the idea of assurance in mind. It was written to believers. And the idea was that based on a believer's response to three attributes of God, that we can know that we have assurance. We can know that we are in him. We can know that we know that we know because of our response to these three truths about who God is. And the first one we said was God is light. And that was what we saw last week. So our response to that truth is that if God is light and there's no darkness in him at all, then we can't be in the darkness either. We have to be in the light too. And our assurance as believers is that if we're walking in the light, we know that we are continually being cleansed, right? This week, we're looking at the idea that God is righteous or, or truth, if you will. And so that is why we're talking about wrestling for the truth. Next week, we will talk about the fact that God is love. And your response to these three attributes of who God is, is what brings you a sense of assurance that, yes, you are in the faith. Yes, you are, and you can have confidence in that. So we're continuing to see these three if you will, tangible evidences of genuine faith. There, there's something you can grab hold of, something you can, something you can bank on, if you will, so that your assurance of salvation will be strengthened. So this week, as I said, we're looking at wrestling for the truth. And, and let me just say there are two elements to the truth, uh, two elements to finding assurance in the truth. And the first element, if you want to look, if you have a pew Bible in your hands, you can look on page 1219, but we're in, we're in 1 John, and we're starting off in chapter 2 here this morning. Let me get there myself. So 1 John 2, and what I want you to see in verse 29 and in verse uh, uh, 7 of chapter 3, if you will, Two statements, direct statements. This is the first element, and that is the premise. The premise is that God is righteous. God is righteous. Uh, You see it in chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And then you see in chapter 3, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Two very direct, very plain statements. God is righteous, just like God is light in chapter 1. So what am I saying to you? Any sense of assurance that you can have as a believer is inextricably linked to this idea that God is righteous. If you want assurance, you, you have to know that this defines who he is. He is light, And he is righteous. And by the way, let me just say that all three of these attributes of God have to be responded to properly. You can't do one without the others. 
that would give you a sense of false assurance. You have to respond rightly to God in all three areas. Okay? So salvation assurance is linked to all three attributes. God is light. God is righteous or truth. And God is love. And if you know God, you will want to act like him. And so you will walk in the light. You will act righteously. And you will love the brethren. Right? It's that simple. So... Let me just say, in John's argumentation here, if you look at this with me, just let your eyes survey. I don't want to read the whole section, so I'm just going to have you kind of skim your eyes across the text. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 18 and following. Uh, Notice in particular in verse uh, 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Uh, This section weaves the idea of God's righteousness to truth. And so you need to understand that because the attribute of God being discussed is is the fact that he's righteous. But John's argumentation swirls around the fact that righteousness equals truth with God. Okay? God is righteous and he is truth. So his children not only know the truth, but they speak the truth and they do the truth and they live out the truth. Um, Children of the devil... They err. They speak lies. They deceive. Uh, So as believers, we need to respond rightly to the fact that God is truth. That means we speak truth. We live truth. We adhere to the truth. God is truth. John 8.44, I think, characterizes this uh, better than anything else. You remember John's gospel and Jesus climactic confrontation with the Pharisees there. They're accusing him of being uh, born essentially out of wedlock. And, And he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So where, where do your allegiances stand? Which side are you on? Are you on the side of the devil who's a liar and speaks deceit and lies and error? Or are you on the side of God who speaks truth, whose word is truth, who is truth itself? Where do your allegiances stand? If you have a pew Bible, turn to page 729, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45, verses 23 to 25. Isaiah says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. That should ring a bell with you. That, that phrase there that to me every knee, will t- every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. What does that sound like? That's Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? But who's it talking about in Philippians chapter 2? It's talking about Christ. Well, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, 
it's talking about God, but Messiah. And so it's one of the proof texts, if you will, of the deity of Christ. What John is going to call the truth. He says in verse 22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. The truth is that Jesus was God incarnate. And although he existed with God in eternity past, right, he did not regard his own rights and prerogatives, but he assumed the posture of a servant and enfleshed himself so that he might redeem mankind back to himself. That is the truth. That is what John calls the truth. And and anybody who denies that, denies the righteousness of Christ, is outside of salvation. Jeremiah 23, 6, if you want to look in your pew Bibles, page 778. In his days... Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. It's another reference to Christ. Whose days is he talking about? He says in his days. Whose days? The Messiah's days, the kingdom of the Messiah. He will be our righteousness. So, God is righteous. And the reality is, we're not. We are not righteous. uh, But God has extended righteousness to us in His Son. We have access to righteousness in Christ. God is righteous. And He has extended that to us in His Son. To deny that Christ is God in the flesh would be to deny His deity and to deny or refuse the righteousness that God has provided for you in Him. It would leave you open to judgment and condemnation. So if you want assurance, what are we saying? You have to know that God is righteous, and that righteousness is found in His Son, and that's the only place where life is to be found, connected to the source. I've been thinking about this a lot, and... I've probably said this before, but I I like this analogy. So try to track with me. When we talk about algebra, okay, I just lost half of you. When we talk about algebra, though, and we're in negative 10 territory, what do we need to get to zero? We need a positive 10, right? That just gets us to zero, though, and you're still a zero. So, So Christ's death, if you will, gets you to zero. It atones for your sin. So now you're a zero. Congratulations. But, but the problem is we need to be a plus 10 to be in the kingdom in the presence of God, right? We need positive righteousness. So how do we get that? Well, it's in Christ. It's in Christ. In Christ's righteousness, in his perfect life, you now go from being a zero to a hero. That's right. <laughs> Romans 3, 21 to 26. Turn there, if you will. Just, it's a great verse that just backs this truth up. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. Then He may be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's God's righteousness. The, the reformers used to say it's, it's externos. It's outside of ourselves. Our righteousness is in Him. It's been manifested in Christ, in His perfect life. So through faith in Him, we get access to the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, that is a great gospel truth this morning. Without the righteousness of Christ, you're still a zero. You're still a zero. And notice in that Romans passage, he uses the phrase propitiation, which is the same word that John picks up over in chapter 2, verse 1, or 2, verse 2, pardon me. Uh, He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And then over in chapter 5, And verse 10, it says the same thing. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is the one who satisfies the wrath of God for us. He not only satisfies the wrath of God, but He imputes His righteousness to us. God is righteous, and we need His righteousness to be in His presence. So God is truth, and we need to adhere to the truth. So this is the second premise in the series, if you will. Last week we saw that God is light. This week we're seeing that God is truth. That is the premise. And so the second element is the priorities. If you'll look at verses 18 to 4, 6, uh, 2.18 to 4.6, I don't have time to read through this whole thing, so what I'm going to do is kind of pick up ideas and thoughts and string some verses together as we go through. My goal is to preach through the entire book in three weeks, and so you can tell Pastor David I did that. I am goal-oriented, so we're going to get there. But there are three priorities we need to keep here in this section, if you will. Three priorities, and again, the premise is God is truth. So the first priority is that we need to know the truth. If God is truth, then we need to know the truth, right? So verses... 21 and 22. We've already looked at it, but let's look at it again. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. What is he saying? If God is truth, then we must know the truth. According to John, those who deny that Jesus is God incarnate, do not know truth, nor do they know Him. The two would equate. Assurance is found, I guess, better way to say it, assurance is found in Orthodox Christology. Orthodox Christology. If you believe that Jesus was the Christ and that He is God incarnate, and you confess and keep on confessing, it's a present active, 
keep on confessing, uh, you can have a reasonable measure of assurance. Remember, John is talking to believers here. So this is not a litmus test for what you have to do to be saved. This is for people who are saved. This is for people who are saved to have a sense of assurance. So don't mistake me when I say, if you do this, this, and this, you will be saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying this should be the fruit of a righteous life. This should be the fruit of a believer's life that you would confess Jesus is the Christ and keep on confessing. That's the truth, right? 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has the life. He, do does, he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? You either have the Son or you don't. You're either saved or you're not. There's no in-between. There's no riding the fence with John. This is not gray areas here. So, I guess the point is, back on message, this is about assurance, right? So you cannot possibly expect to have any sense of assurance if you don't know the truth, right? Is that a logical assumption? How can you do the truth if you don't know the truth? How can you know God if you don't know the truth? The answer is, you can't, right? You can't. And how do we know the truth? Hint. It's sitting in your lap. I guess the reason I say that is because, you know, biblical ignorance in the church is at an all-time high. I mean, it, it really is. We live in a time when we have more Bibles, more software, more tools, more books about the Bible. We even have Bibles on our iPhones or our Androids, whatever you have this morning. Yet people don't know their Bibles. Do you realize that? We have more available to us than anybody in previous centuries. And yet people don't know it. They have multiple copies of it, and they don't know it. Some people don't know their Bibles, and so they don't have a biblically formed theology of who God is and what he expects. But John 17, 17 tells us what? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. It doesn't say it contains truth. It says it is truth, right? It is the only truth. John read for us Psalm 19, right? All those statements about the Word of God. It is truth. And, and I guess the question is, if we don't defend the truth, beloved, who will? If you don't defend it, who will? Many have what I called firmly held opinions rather than biblically formed positions. Right? You know those types. Firmly held opinions, but little biblical support for them. 
said another way, uh, sanctified opinions. And, and I guess the reason I say that is because, beloved, it, it, that does not leave anybody with any sense of assurance just to have opinions. If your positions are derived from the Word of God, then you can know that your mind is saturated with the truth and that your convictions are firmed up in the Word of God. And you can have a sense of assurance. But just holding to opinions, how do, how do, we, how do we monitor that as truth? It's one person's opinion against the other. And I guess the stronger opinion works uh, or wins the day, right? This quote by J.C. Ryle, I, I put it up here for you. I, th- I think this is a good reminder. What is the best safeguard against false teaching? Beyond all doubt, the regular study of the Word of God with prayer for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The Bible was given to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The man who reads it aright will never be allowed greatly to err. It is neglect of the Bible which makes so many a prey to the false teachers whom they hear. There's a lot of false teaching out there, folks. And if you don't know your Bible, you will not be able to stand firm. This guy, Burke Parsons, in his book on assurance, he said, Many Christians lack full assurance of their salvation because their understanding of assurance is founded on the constantly changing emotions of their hearts rather than on the eternal Word of God. Their emotions drive the day. It's whatever they feel like on a given day. So, you know, assurance is not found in opinions or in emotions. It's found in the truth, in the true Word of God. Right? It's, it's found in knowing the truth about who Christ is and what He has done for you and having derived your understanding of those things from the Scriptures. From the Scriptures. The only way to know truth is to know your Bible. And the only way to know your Bible is to read your Bible. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. It is the place where God has revealed Himself to us. It is the place where God has revealed His way of salvation. The second priority, practice the truth. Look at chapter 2 and verse 28. So we need to know the truth. We need to practice the truth. 28 and 29 of chapter 2. Now little children abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Chapter 3, 18 to 22. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. 
In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We need to, we need to know the truth and we need to practice the truth. And John is, I mean, he's just saying flat out here, there's, there's no two ways about it that orthodoxy without orthopraxy is the same thing as a true lie. It's an oxymoron. You can't say you know God and yet live like a rank pagan. You must practice the truth. You must do the truth, literally. There are three ways to practice the truth, which I think are outlined in this text for us. I'll kind of lift them out for you here what I'm calling purifying the self in chapter 3 and verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And the idea here is they cleanse themselves from defilement. So in light of Christ's return, verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet we will be We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And he says, everyone who has that hope purifies themselves. So the, The motivation to be pure is not so much looking back at the cross with gratitude. That's a great thing to do. But the the motive for purifying yourself is Christ is coming at any moment. And you're going to see him face to face. And you better be ready. You better be ready. Uh, chapter 2, verse 28. We don't want to, we want to have confidence, right? We want to have assurance. We don't want to shrink back in shame when he comes. We don't want to like hide ourselves and, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I, I, I really did not live my life very well. Sorry about that. Is there a do-over? No, I don't, I don't think so. What will you do with what you've been given? So, Purifying the self. The second way to practice the truth is what I'm saying is persisting in the Savior. Chapter 2, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. Drop down to verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Abide in him. Verse 28. My little children, abide in him. Chapter 3 and verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. You see this? Abiding persisting in the Savior, abiding in Him, staying or remaining with Christ. And I, if you'll scour the letter, you'll find that what we're really talking about is adhering to sound teaching about Christ and not being led astray by the false teaching of the day. That's really what we're talking about. It's persisting in what you've been taught about Christ. That's the idea. And the third way to practice the truth that I think is here in the text is what I'm calling preferring the saints. And we'll talk more about this next week, but 
But John weaves this in here. If you know truth and you practice the truth, you will love the brethren. There's, there's no two ways about it. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. No two ways about it. Preference of your brethren is a requirement of the gospel. Preferring one another. Loving one another as he has loved us. John fifteen twelve says, right, as I have loved you, so love one another. That's the new commandment. That's what Jesus has given us. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here's one of those we know statements again. We know that we have passed out of death into life because... How do we know? We love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's pretty plain, isn't it? That's about as plain as it gets. So, three ways to practice the truth. Purify the self, persist in the Savior, prefer the saints. John Murray has a quote that I like. He says, The facts are that the more intelligent, the deeper, and the more unwavering the assurance of salvation is, the humbler, the more stable, and the more circumspect will be the life, walk, and conduct. Where closeness of fellowship with God is maintained, where the highest privileges of redemptions are appropriated, there holiness, love, and obedience must reign. That's pretty plain. I like the way he said that. I think that grabs the idea here. If you know God and his righteousness in Christ, you will will do it. You will practice it. And if you are practicing righteousness, present active, continually, then you can have assurance that you know God and that you are saved. These are the fruits of a regenerated heart. This is a fruit of a regenerated heart. So, practice the truth. Third priority, test the truth. So, know the truth, practice the truth, test the truth. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Beloved, we do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, 
and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You either are in or you are out. There is the apostolic preaching of the cross and there is everything else. There is truth and there is error. So John says there's a, there's a tool that we can use to evaluate truth, beloved, and that is uh, by this we know, right? The spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Either you adhere to the apostolic message or you don't. Uh, you either know God or you don't. The only way you can know God is to adhere to the apostolic message. Otherwise, everything else is heresy. There really are only two options. And John is saying here, test it. Test it out. Test the truth. Evaluate it. Examine it. it the, uh, the idea here is to test by an examination. Look at it. Scrutinize it. Make sure what you're hearing is truth. One thing you want to pull out of here is that spiritual warfare is embodied in people. Spiritual warfare is embodied in people. I mean, the direct statement here is that the Antichrist stands behind the activities of these false teachers. You know, in our day, we have all kinds of heretics. In John's day, uh, they were advocating all kinds of weird stuff. Docetism, uh, from the, the word dokeo, which means to seem. And the idea was that Christ only seemed to come in bodily form, but he actually was a spirit. Uh, they claimed that Christ did not come in the flesh, that it only seemed like it. It, it was a hybrid out of Greek philosophy and, and Platonism. The heresiarch Serinthus, in particular, he postulated the idea that the Spirit of Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and that he left prior to the cross. Uh, the, all of this stuff developed out of syncretistic mishmash of Judaism and Greek uh, philosophy and secularism all sort of mixed together. The false teaching which John was fighting against, this is what they were saying. I have a list here. And I'm, I'm not going to have you look up all these verses, but let me just tell you, this is what they were saying. I mean, this is why John says so many times, if we say, if we say, if we say, because that's what they were saying. And the idea is that they denied that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah or the Anointed One out of 1 John 2.22, also chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 5. They denied that Christ came in the flesh. Uh, 1 John 4.2, 2 John 1.7. They denied their own sinfulness, 1 John 1.8 and 10. They denied salvation through Jesus Christ, 1 John 2.2. 2. They denied the necessity of righteous conduct. 1 John 1, 6, 2, 29, 3, 6, and verse 10 of chapter 3. 
They denied brotherly love. 1 John 2.9 And to top it off, the cherry on top of the sundae, the icing on the cake, they opposed the Apostle John's authority. 1 John 4.6 and three, uh, 3 John 1.10 We don't have to do what you tell us, John. Who are you? Really? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. You have to do what I say. I'm the boss of you. So, John was certainly dealing with his heresies in his day, huh? And these things crept up in the church before the prophecy even had a chance to be fulfilled. I mean, I mean they were in the church, embedded in the church. Acts 2.28, they, they rose up like savage wolves tearing flocks apart. A.W. Pink says this, The apostles of Satan are, for the most part, ordained ministers. Thousands of those who occupy our modern pulpits are no longer engaged in presenting the fundamentals of the Christian faith, but have turned aside from the truth and have given heed unto fables. Instead of magnifying the enormity of sin and setting forth its eternal consequences, they minimize it by declaring that sin is merely ignorance or the absence of good. Instead of warning their hearers to flee from the wrath to come, they make God a liar by declaring that he is too loving and too merciful to send any of his own creatures to eternal torment. Instead of declaring that without shedding of blood is no remission, they merely hold up Christ as the great exemplar and exhort their hearers to follow in his steps. That was written in the early 1900s. How far we have come from that, huh? It is not only that, but it is tenfold that now. And, and you know, the, the interesting, thing about, interesting thing about Pink is, is that he's speaking from experience. Most people don't know this about him. He was converted at the age of 22 from an occult Gnostic heresy that was in England. Gnosticism is what John was fighting against. And, and here, uh, in the late 19th century, uh, Gnosticism was alive and well in England. It was, it was called the Theosophical Society, which was uh, a spiritual philosophy that was developed in the late 19th century. It's, their foundational tenets was not the Scripture. It was a book called The Secret Doctrine written by their co-founder, Helena Lavatsky. The Secret Doctrine. That ought to give you a clue that it's not right. You know, they still have a presence in over 70 countries. They're still around. Still around. But Pink's father, he, he kept after him. And he says, son... You know, match these things up to the Word of God. Read the Scriptures. Look at the Scriptures and, and see if these things be true. And at the age of 22, he was converted. He was converted. He, we have a responsibility, beloved, to test the truth. We have to. We have to test the truth of what teachers are saying to us against the Word of God. It either lines up with the apostolic message of the New Testament or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, 
run. Run the other direction. Our, our assurance comes with our ability to discern truth from error. What we hold in our hands in the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles. It is their posterity. It is what they have left us. They knew Christ. They spoke to Christ firsthand. They received teaching from Christ. And they taught it to the church. And when they knew they were being killed and massacred and dying off, the Spirit led them to record it in the pages of Scripture. We have their writings now for posterity. To depart from the writings of the New Testament is to depart from truth itself. Interestingly, I was watching the smiling preacher this morning, and I was, I was thinking to myself, self, how can this stadium be filled with 10,000 people and there isn't a single shred of Scripture being taught? How can that be? Listen to this by G. Campbell Morgan. He says, No one statement wrested from its context is a sufficient warrant for actions that plainly controvert other commands. How excellent a thing it would be if the whole church of Christ had learned that no law of life may be based upon an isolated text. Every false teacher who has divided the church has had, it is written, on which to hang its doctrine. Beloved, you need to be discerning. People who teach from the Scriptures, that's a good sign. People who use the Scriptures laced throughout what they want to say, that's a whole different ballgame. Run. Test it. Beware. False teachers can make the Scriptures say whatever they want them to say for their own purposes. They can manipulate them. They can twist them. They can, they can work them to such a way that they will milk people for their money and they will lead them astray. And they're, they're in the pulpits. They're not just in Sunday school classes. They're not just sitting in the pews. They're in the pulpits now. Much of what is out there in our time are, are flat-out cults. They come knocking on your door, right? They're cults. They're experientially, experientially driven charismatics. They're prosperity hucksters, right? We see them all the time. Miracle spring water. Pray over this blanket. Sow your $1,000 seed of faith. Don't you know that God is not mocked? Whatever you sow, you will reap. That verse is not talking about finances at all, beloved. It's talking about the interpersonal relationships within the church. More forms of psychobabble and, and Christianity sort of combined together. Open theism, emergent theology, new perspectives on Paul and combinations thereof, flat-out liberalism that that denies the Christ of Christianity, right? Their whole goal is to separate the Jesus of history from the Christ of Christianity. They say it's two different persons. One is a myth. One was made up. The other one might have been a historical Jesus. We don't know. He may have said some of those things, 
We don't know. Folks, they're unbelievers. They're unbelievers. J.C. Ryle said this, it would, be, it would have been well for the church of Christ if the warnings of the gospel had been as much studied as its promises. I think he's absolutely right. The church is awash with heresies. So, read your Bible. Know your Bible. Study your Bible. Challenge yourself to read through it this year. You know, that's why, we're, that's why we're talking a lot about this one-to-one Bible reading around here. Why do you think we're doing that? Because people need to read their Bibles. And if you have somebody doing it with you, you're more likely to maintain. If it's just you doing it, chances are pretty good you'll make a million excuses to drop off and quit. So read your Bible. Why is the church so anemic? Because it lacks assurance. Why does it lack assurance? Because it's biblically ignorant. You know, sadly, many in this room have never read their Bibles through once. I know because I've talked to you. Not once. How can you have assurance apart from his word? The answer is, you can't. You can't. So, assurance is to be found in the premise that God is righteous. God is truth. And if you want assurance, then maintain these three priorities, beloved. Know the truth, practice the truth, Test the truth. See if these things be so. You're smart people. Our old pastor used to say, your salvation is a present reality. Remember that? Your salvation is a present reality. If you will dwell closely with God and Christ, then you can have a reasonable measure of assurance. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have the word of truth in our hands and we ask you, our Father, to help us to be good stewards of that which has been entrusted to us. Father, help us to walk in obedience to your word. Help us to know it, to do it, and to test it. Father, we want to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We want to walk in the light. We want to walk in righteousness. And we thank you for putting your spirit within us to enable us to do so. Our Father, we can only pray that you would continue to keep us on the path of righteousness. We thank you for giving us the assurance through your word that we can know that we know that we know as we abide closely with you. Father, may you glorify yourself in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.